0: After after that, I have to uh, I have to add a prescript uh, word, um, uh, filling in for Jim Packers a bit. Uh, it, it proves that heaven does have a sense of humor.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, will choose Harvey for him. That's a warrior for the gospel, Jim Packers. He's a bit frail these days, but he's a warrior, as you know. He's a fighter. So I um. I thought uh, being asked on so- some bit of short notice, had to do something seasonal, and it dawned on me, it's, I'm sure it's dawned on you uh, at times, that at, at Advent, we're in Advent, and as we approach Christmas, what would we do uh, without Luke mm-hmm. and his gospel? At this season, we'd be missing so much. Luke um, famously aims, doesn't he, at, in his own lovely way, the Gospel of Luke is often referred to as a lovely piece of literary uh, art, and it certainly is. He aims at thoroughness, for sure. And this he signals as he begins his narrative. Let me uh, remind you of it. I'm sure a lot of you know it quite well. I love the openings of the Gospels. They're always so interesting. They usually do signal lots, and in Luke's case, a lot, lot. He says, you'll recall, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. What an opening, the opening, the overture of Luke. Uh, Rich stuff there, rich stuff. Is that not, uh, it's worth unpacking that for a bit. So we begin this morning, that is quite revealing. Luke tells us here that many were writing about Jesus. Many were writing about Jesus by the time that Luke began his own remembrance of Jesus. Many. How many, many, he does not say. Would that there were more footnotes in the Gospels. Historians especially would love that. How many, many, Luke doesn't say. It might indicate some, maybe it's an overstatement to call it anxiety, but some concern about remembering as the eyewitness generation grew older. Eyewitnesses, they are mentioned by Luke there. Eyewitnesses have, to put it, um, to state the obvious, eyewitnesses have authority, don't they? Uh, also, they have they, uh, those taught by eyewitnesses, <coughs> likewise, have a bit of authority. If you've met someone you want to know about, uh, and you find out they know that person, they have a kind of authority with you. You're eager to hear what they have to say. Live, living memory, uh, as it is called, is a remarkable kind of power, in fact. Living memory. Even uh, we can go uh, further than that. I think we can, in, in the case of the Christian scriptures, uh, as speaking as a Christian to other Christians, we can kind we can t- uh, talk about living memory even as a kind of presence. So Luke would give us a written witness to this presence. Or Luke's Gospel, like all the Gospels, like Scripture as a whole, it's a form of presence. I find that very helpful and moving. I first read that kind of language about Scripture from a a Russian, he's he's alive, he's a contemporary, a Russian medievalist, who talks about uh, writing as a form of presence. He's a Christian, too, this uh, writer God, uh, put this a bit formally, I find it helpful sometimes to put things a bit formally. God has ordained that his word written and preached is a form of divine presence. Wow. When you open a Bible, I says it who's the writer in the American writer, Annie Dillard says when you go to church you should put on a seatbelt. <laughs> Maybe when you read the Bible, put on a seatbelt, you're in the presence of something divine. Properly understood, that has to be unfolded. Theologians do a lot of work unfolding that kind of thing for us. At Advent, we remember, we especially remember that God, that heaven, has caused, you know these words, Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. So today is the time together to read, to mark, to learn, And hopefully, hopefully, inwardly digest, you recognize the colic language, I know, a part of this divine presence that God has given us. So today, as advertised, a look at Mary's song, or the Magnificat, those of you who are Latin scholars like that. The Latin title of this song, My Soul, where the title comes from, My Soul magnifies the Lord. So before we begin uh, and go further, let's say a word of prayer. Our God, we thank you for this mystery of Holy Scripture that uh, we want to learn, mark, and inwardly digest, uh, so that we may glorify you with Mary, to magnify your name, and that uh, in it all as you desire that we would be blessed. We pray that you'll be with us, Lord, as we look at the things of the gospel together. Amen. Amen. Luke remembers for us, again, why Luke's gospel is so uh, so lovely and so helpful for us as Christians. He remembers for us some very early things. It's one of his um, uh, gifts that he wanted to write for Theophilus. The young adolescent Jesus, well, Luke uh, uniquely remembers, he was about 12, he tells us his age, uh, conversing with teachers in Israel, specifically teachers in the temple. Uh, He had gone missing uh, from his parents when he uh, uh, visited the temple for some conversation with teachers, and when he was discovered by his parents, you remember this story, Uh, He responded to their agitation, uh, uh, understandable agitation. He responded with the famous, uh, somewhat enigmatic words, perhaps, did you not know that I must be about my father's work, that I must be about my father's business? I believe King James translates that. Perhaps Theophilus had asked for some early pictures of the man Jesus that he was learning about. And that, as Luke says, many were remembering by writing about Jesus. He grew up, says Luke, under the authority of his parents, growing in stature, growing in wisdom. Luke's beautiful little comments. Anything earlier, Luke, Theophilus might have asked, then, well, yes, uh, Luke may have inquired from Mary herself earlier. Perhaps uh, he had gone to speak with Elizabeth, the wife of Zechariah, the temple priest. Perhaps he had met with brothers and sisters of Jesus. And from these, he had put together the story of a uniquely, we can call it a mystery-laden... My words, I don't know if this is a good way to think of it, but I think Luke has given us sort of a first framework to look at the man, Jesus... Jesus, yeah, an early framework that Luke wants to give to give us. This story, uh, we now know, uh, and the Holy Catholic Church knows, that's who we are here this morning together, in obedience to the Word of God says, we said it this morning, you'll be saying it later today at services you go to born of the Virgin Mary. So the Church incorporates into her credo witness. Uh, This early remembering that he had been born of a virgin named Mary. That's an early remembering that informs us all. We're part of this early remembering. And in this early framework, this early... I like to think of it as a picture album of the youth of Jesus. Pictures of us. Mom, do you have that at your house? Oh, Here's what you looked like when you were five and ten. You close it quickly sometimes. (laughs) In this early picture album, we find famously Mary's song that Luke uniquely gives us. Again, my soul magnifies the Lord. I thought that, I I wanted to say right off the bat forgive me today for, um, I'll be doing a lot of repetition. I think it's worth it with this psalm prayer. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, we heard about him last week from Brother Joe over here. Wonderfully, he says you know, that faith is repetition. You keep on repeating faith. It can't sit stale in you. You keep repeating it. Scripture is for constant repetition. My soul magnifies the Lord says Mary as her, uh, her famous song, Prayer Begins. Elizabeth famously, just before this song is recorded, Luke has told us that Elizabeth had greeted Mary as the mother of my Lord. Amazing. Uh, the, remember the moment uh, Mary greets Elizabeth and she's, the babe in Elizabeth's room leapt. Mm-hmm. Very, talk about mystery-laden narrative. Uh, And Elizabeth wants to know about the mother of my Lord, the mother of my Lord. So Mary begins and says, my soul magnifies the Lord. The church must always, uh, with Mary, as Luke tells us, ponder these things. Luke goes out of his way to tell us that Mary was a thoughtful person, and she pondered The mystery that she'd been involved in, that she got caught up in. Mary pondered these things, Luke tells us, in her heart. The church does that in many ways. Certainly, theology is uh, a pondering. Theology thinks. Theology, uh, hopefully, prayerfully, uh, seeks illumination. Prayer itself and theology, properly understood, they are uh, an arduous task. Uh, you're meant to struggle. The gospel happily tells us, struggle with this. Ponder it. You'll grow in your understanding of it. Uh, Peter Taylor Forsyth uh, is a great teacher of the how prayer is an arduous activity. Mary may have arduously thought about how to speak about what she was caught up in. She pondered these things in her heart. Mary is famously, of course, with child. But this child enters the world, well, um, shall I put it this way, trailing clouds of glory. You may have heard those words. Wordsworth may have there indulged in uh, magical thinking. Mystery is not magical thinking. It's weightier than that. It's a divine revealing of things that we would otherwise not know. But Luke certainly has been made aware in his inquiries of a something strange going on here in the birth of Jesus, strange in the birth of John the Baptist. The mother of the Lord the mother of the Lord magnifies this Lord. To call it paradox seems pathetic. It's more than that. It's only a divine action that brings about such mystery. The mother of the Lord magnifies the Lord. I mentioned Peter Taylor foresight. i Reading a bit of him recently, so helpful. All for many years I've loved his. He's a congregationalist by about 1860, he died about in the 1920s. He speaks of God, our Savior, at this kind of season, uh, emptying himself, the famous language of Paul and Philippians 2, and Foresight, again, the theologian arduously struggling with well, what's going on at Advent and Christmas? He talks about the Lord entering into the obliv I love his language here, the oblivion of birth. The emptying of God, the second person. And we, we don't know about our birth. He, em- he, he entered into our oblivion. Where were you when you were born? Do you understand the mystery of how you were formed in your mother's womb? No one does. He entered into that oblivion. And then, as Forsyth says, he joined us in, oh, I, this language, he joined us in the humiliation of life. There's a weighty word. Theologians do ponder and say weighty things the church uh, learns in her his, the church's intellectual life, her thinking life, her inquiring life, her pondering life. The Lord Jesus is, second person of the infinite Trinity has joined us in this humiliation of life. Life is a humiliation. It's more than that, but it is. He entered into this veil of tears where things go so catastrophically wrong. This morning, James led us in prayers, the prayers of the people. We we remember some whose life right now is a kind of nightmare. At this, at this season, who uh, know they're dying. Uh, life has become, at one level for them, bitter. You've made my way bitter, says Joel. The humiliation of life. If anyone finds that, I can't, if anyone finds that message on a Hallmark Christmas card,
1: <laughs>
0: I will buy you a cup of coffee. <laughs> And you can't make it up yourself. Now I picked that up.
1: <laughs>
0: you don't find that on Christmas cards, do you? It's all, hey, have a great season.
1: <laughs> the, the
0: Lord has entered the humiliation of life with us. You know, well, He has uh, to save us. My, I magnify the Lord, God, my Savior. He's come to do a great work for us. Mary knows this. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That's famous, of course, Hebrew parallelism, as you know. When you read about the Psalms, you always hear about parallelism. The Jews, um, wonderful people of God, love to say a, a sentence and then say it again, sometimes in a slightly different way, sometimes expanding, but essentially saying the same thing twice. So magnifies is paired with rejoices. My soul is is, uh, uh, paired with my spirit. Same thing, soul and spirit there. A bit of Bible wisdom and knowledge there. And then is paired the Lord and God my Savior. The Lord that Mary refers to is God my Savior. I'm a Protestant. I don't apologize for that. But calling Mary uh, with our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, calling her the Mother of God, my Savior, is in Holy Writ. It was used in a particular moment of history to do some uh, good hard work of theological clarification. But Mary is the Mother of God, our Savior. And we don't have to apologize for that language or back away from it. Mary is the Mother of God, the Savior. There it is. God has looked upon Mary. Um, I know this is only good for people in the front row, maybe the second, but uh, if you uh, as I refer to these, uh, these uh, moments in the song, you'll, you'll see it in your handout. God has looked upon Mary's lowliness, her humble her lowliness, or at the ESV has it her humble estate. There it is, Her humble estate. So what is unstated here, the church will get around to saying in different ways and expand on it. For he hath, Mary says, regarded the lowliness of his handmaiden. But the church has come to see, as she ponders and unfolds Mary's song, the greater wonder here... Is this a safe thing to say? It certainly is part of theological pondering of Mary's uh, song. The greater wonder, perhaps, is that in Mary's womb, God has made himself lowly. He beholds the lowly handmaiden, but he has made himself lowly in his identification with us in the humiliation of life. God makes himself uh, lowly. It's the season for celebrating these kind of things uh, along the way, just a couple of times. I can't resist. Do you know the poet uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, he just just says so simply, God's infinity dwindled to infancy. Mm. It's worth pondering in our hearts. With poetry, as Ed Norman helped us with music, The church unfolds and celebrates and finds ways to remember. God's infinity dwindled to infancy, dwindled to infancy. Wow. With fear and trembling, just a passing remark. These things do uh, make the church think and think and think. Sometimes when the church thinks and thinks and thinks, it gets yourself into sort of thinking troubles. So, Calvin, uh, next year we're celebrating the uh, remembering, uh, the half a millennium uh, since the Reformation. At the time of the Reformation, the incarnation was thought about a lot because the church was rethinking a lot of things about what this mystery means, God taking upon himself... Flesh. Calvin believed that the Word became flesh, and also he remained the second person of the Trinity, the Word, upholding the universe by His Word of power. Uh, that, that's central to Reformed thinking that got into the Anglican tradition deeply at the time. The Cameron was a Calvinist. The Prayer Book is a Calvinist kind of piece of work. So they have the Word made flesh, but the Word also upholds the universe. Calvin sort of had extra Calvinisticum, was called. But the Lutherans thought differently. Luther said, no, no. Luther thought that the whole mystery of, of the second person became incarnate, full stop, absolutely. So the body of Jesus is ubiquitous now. So the Lutherans think that on the holy table the Lord is present in his body and the reform said, no, he's there spiritually. And that's, see, you can, the church can think theologically about the, this uh, incarnation thing. It has rich, amazing possibilities in its unfolding. The church must ponder this. Where is the body of Jesus now? It was in Mary's womb, now it's at the Father's right hand. Is it ubiquitous when, when you meet Jesus in prayer? Are you meeting his body? Meet him through his spirit? End of, end of theological footnote. Just to show you, the church has to ponder this deeply. We celebrate it in song, we remember it in poetry, but the church goes on thinking about this mystery. God means us to think about this mystery. I received the bread and wine this morning and I need to ponder that in my heart as Mary did. What did I receive today? It's worth thinking about. Not to become intellectually perplexed, but because it's a good thing to think about the Gospel. What did I receive today? It doesn't matter if I understand it much. God gave me His grace by meeting Him in the word preached, the bread and the wine. God has made himself lowly. The letter to the Hebrews says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brethren. He calls us his brothers and sisters, the letter to the Hebrews says. So God is not ashamed to become one of us and to have a mother. I just, I'm just, i sorry to repeat, but this surely if that's not worth repeating and pondering over and over what is in Scripture... God is not ashamed to become one of us. And our Lord Jesus, our brother, our elder brother, is a mother named Mary. He that is mighty, uh, then, Mary says, he that is mighty hath magnified me. It's about four lines down in the handout. He that is mighty hath magnified me, and holy is his name. Mary magnifies the Lord because the Lord has magnified Mary. Mm, Just noting the obvious, what's on the surface here is wondrous. Mary magnifies the Lord. The Lord has magnified Mary. And so it's no wonder then that she goes on to say, all generations shall call me blessed. I have been so magnified to be the place where the second person of the Trinity, she didn't know that language, took up his residence to come into the world to be with us. Again, excuse me for the obvious, but uh, it's wonderful to rehearse the obvious. All generations should call Mary blessed. Should we think, again, the church ponders the word of God and should we think, I ask this rhetorically to you, maybe in the discussion time, we can uh, go over this in, if, if it appeals to you, should we think more frequently of God's intention to magnify us? Do you think that God has an intention to magnify you? Surely he does. That's what salvation is. God wants to magnify you, to make you glorious in his creation. Uh, To make us, to think of it, to make us immortal. The gospel reveals, Paul says to Timothy, reveals immortality. I don't know if we think enough about that. I'm getting older, I'm beginning to think about it more. Doctor, am I immortal? He always says no.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Even after I got, a, uh, I got a pneumonia shot this week, uh, is that going to make me immortal? He said, no.
1: <laughs> Sorry, buddy.
0: The immortal stuff is uh, in the back, you got to pay big bucks for it. I'm not immortal. But I, maybe someday I should say to him, Doctor, I am immortal. <laughs> The gospel of Jesus Christ promises me immortality. He would pick up the phone. Exactly,
2: exactly.
0: Psychiatry, floor six. Exactly. The gospel says we are immortal, the gospel reveals that we are immortal. We will be made immortal. Uh, Again, Joe talked about Soren Kierkegaard, one of my favorites. Seergaard says it is a profound thing to be a human being. Mm-hmm. Will, Will knows. He's in battles all the time in our culture, and at the heart of it is the belief that we it is not a profound thing to be a human being. In our culture, it's not profound to be a baby anymore or to be old. At both ends of the game of life, we sort of get casual about getting rid of people. It's because it's we do not believe in our culture and it's getting more and more deeply ingrained that it is not a profound thing to be a human being. But the Gospel says it is. We are God has created us for immortality. And there it is. And his mercy, uh, Mary continues, his mercy is on them that fear him throughout all generations. And his mercy is on them that fear him throughout all generations. That is a very Hebraic kind of thing to say, it seems to me. God is working out, Mary knows this, a strange, very slow, humanly speaking, complex story over time with an identifiable people. Mary lived in the midst of that identifiable people throughout, she says, generations. Genealogies are not an afterthought in the Bible. Jesus, when he went to synagogue in Nazareth with uh, Mary and Joseph and the brothers and sisters in the family, if there were such, um, they would have learned genealogies. Uh, Mary knew she was part of a story in which God was working. Salvation is worked out slowly in a very complex manner by our God. His mercy, she says next, But five lines down, is on them that fear him. His mercy is on them that fear him. It recalls, doesn't it, that Abraham called God his fear. That's a, a profound little moment in the Old Testament. Abraham, the one who was called by God, called God his fear. So I take it, the hymn has it right. "'Twas grace that taught my soul to fear." And grace, my fears relieved. Abraham feared God, and then because God was becoming his friend, a friend of God, and they w- worked out that profound friendship. It involved deep reverence and respect. Abraham called God uh, his fear. His mercy is on them that fear him throughout all generations. Now, to keep moving right along. There's a change of tone now in Mary's song. He has showed strength with his arm. She now says things like this. He has showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their hearts. And more, he has put down the mighty from their seats and hath exalted the humble and meek. (laughs) Uh, And more, even more reversals. They're piled on here, aren't they? He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Real, from a tone of wonderment at what God was doing in Mary's life, she now has a tone of uh, militancy, almost, about what the God of Israel is doing as he works salvation into the midst of the earth. At that point you can uh, begin to wonder, though, what what do such words really mean? In uh, What's their payoff, really, in the real world that we know? Well, as history, it seems to me, again, this is back to a theological pondering of Mary's song, this speaks of God as the hidden presence in history, as the hidden presence of the world. We believe that God is, is working out his purposes in history, but it's very hidden. We're not always going to see the proud get what they deserve and the lowly ones raised up. Mary here is speaking, in fact, eschatologically. She's speaking about God's perfect future that he's giving the world. Uh, it speaks of what will be made openly obvious at history's end, when the Lord returns, Mary really has pondered these things in her heart and worked out where they, where the mystery she's caught up in, where it stands in the mystery of God's unfolding of His plan of salvation. Uh, there will be great reversals. He fills the hungry with good things. The rich he sends away empty. Uh, of course we may recall of course at this point that Mary's song has a a clear as you know a clear model in a model a forebear in Israel scripture. You'll recall that in 1 Samuel chapter 2, I won't spend much time on this. It shows us another woman in Israel singing a song of high celebration. You recall this, you Bible readers. Hannah, after the gift to her of a boy, Samuel, she sang a song that is somewhat like Mary's song. Mary must have known Hannah's song. The Lord, uh, right off the bat, in a freewheeling translation, the Lord, says Hannah, has filled my heart with joy. She's oh, My heart will magnify the Lord, she's saying there. Uh, he saved me. Uh, he, 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 none are holy like the Lord. Mary acknowledges the Lord's holiness in her song. He, she says, Hannah, just like Mary, he makes a poor, he makes rich. God does great reversals in the world. She sings like Mary of these great reversals. He brings down, says Hannah, and he lifts up. She even goes so far as to say, Hannah, those who oppose the Lord are destroyed. He thunders against them, says Israel's God through Hannah. So there's militancy in in the midst of God's as he works out salvation. It has to be acknowledged. Tom Wright, I think, overstates it. He's a little bit shy of the militancy. I just looked up one mention he makes in one of his books about this song. He says, wow, Mary gets really tough here. He wonders about it. As Hannah was strong in her language, Israel and those who speak for Israel often celebrate the gift of a child. Abraham, famously, and Sarah. Uh, Elkanah, that's the husband of Hannah, they Uh, celebrate the gift of a child. And of course, as we're looking at this morning, Mary. The same, would you agree, it's the same and yet not the same. Luke wants to tell us this birth is quite different. It's utterly unique. Nothing less than that. I heard the Messiah on Friday night, the privilege at the Orpheum. Unto us a son is given. uh, And the government will be upon his shoulders. This This birth is the answer to that expectation of Israel? He will be called mighty. He will be called, you know the word so well, the Prince of Peace. How to think this? Of course, all of this is a challenge, and it's meant to be. Uh, I think we call it a happy challenge. Thinking through how how this uh, how this unfolds in the mystery of Scripture. How often in your whole life long, may I ask, how have have, how often have you used the word, I'll spell it for you, palimpsest? <laughs> Hands up. How? I've never used it in conversation. Maybe once in... <laughs> do you know the word palimpsest? Not respectfully. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Just for the curious, P-A-L-I-M-P-S-E-S-T, palimpsest. A dictionary definition of this uh, obscure word goes like this. It's actually an important word. A parchment, manuscript, etc., written upon two or three times. The earlier writing, continues the definition, the earlier writing, having been wholly or partially erased to make room for the next. Apparently it's from a Greek word that literally means scraped again. (laughs) Palimpsest. There's a book called Palimpsest. That little dictionary interlude, um, if it's obvious where, where this goes, it gives us a sort of picture of how revelation in Scripture works, it seems to me. God reveals, God promises, and in doing so, He creates meaning and spaces, if you will, for more revelation. He wrote a story about Abraham and Sarah and their kid. This Elkanah story. They're like manuscripts. And then the Spirit comes and says, let's tell this story over again. And writes over it like a, oh, a palimpsest it would be called. Yeah. That's how Scripture works. It's not sort of linear. It's o- That's over now. No, the later stuff is sort of, Pictured with what came earlier. And it teaches, it reveals the meaning of what comes later. That's why the church never dreamed, really, of getting rid of the Old Testament. We don't understand Jesus without the Old Testament. Mary doesn't understand what's happening in her womb without the story of Israel as a framework to understand it in. So Luke records this uh, wonderful fulfillment of earlier mysteries of parents with children. God was preparing Israel, giving her an expectation of how this story was going to go. Hannah's Hannah's story of a child given, the child was Samuel, recall, for a special prophetic and priestly ministry, Again, now told again, but with a fullness all but unthinkable in its glory, as Luke puts it in front of us. And Mary then speaks of this strange, if you will, way of Israel's God. He, she continues in her song, we get towards the end of it here. He, remembering his mercy, his mercy, hath helped, Holpen. this is from the prayer book, this Magnificat. He has helped his servant Israel. Mary remembers, this whole thing I'm involved in is part of Israel's story. There's no gospel without Israel's story. Jesus, in a sense, is is Israel. He's Israel's true identity. Yes. He remembering. May we gloss that with reverence, of course, as God remembering that he has more story to tell. God remembered that I haven't quite finished that story yet, that I'm working out in the middle of the world. Hannah's Song must be a part of this uh, this ongoing revelation. this uh, one more time, I promise not again, this palimpsest. You can start using that in conversation if you
1: <laughs> don't
0: expect comprehension. <laughs> yes, you yes, He God has promised to Mary's and Israel's forefathers that he would fulfill his words to Abraham. And his line forever. God remembers Abraham and Sarah, He remembers Hannah and Elkanah, He remembers, and He fulfills what the story He's telling. And Luke says, this with Mary's help. Obviously, the story has taken an astonishing turn here. The infinite has dwindled into an infinite, uh, an infant. What if Mary had read Hopkins? She would have incorporated (laughs) it. Luke, Luke, obviously, to repeat, intends completeness. He intends thoroughness, and so does Mary. She praises within heaven's plan, within heaven's story of uh, salvation. Mary's happiness, if you will, is Israel's happiness. Mary's happiness is our happiness. She sings sort of on our behalf, doesn't she? We have entered into the mystery of what happened to Mary. I must close. I must close because I want lots of time for feedback and um, a conversation about these wonderful things. The poetry of Advent and uh, Christmas, I think, is obvious, isn't it? I think uh, I'm glad... I'm very much glad for the poetry. I haven't been quoting a bit of poetry in there just for the fun of it. Uh, this season generates poetry. So does so does Easter. This season in the church's life generates poetry. It's hard to imagine this season without its music. That's why a couple of weeks ago to hear Ed Norman playing centuries of glorious song and music about Advent mysteries and Christmas mysteries is no entertainment for the Christian, is it? It's part of palimpsest. The church tells the story over and over again in poetry, in song and music, in deep theological, arduous work theologically. And I think it's true to say, as Becky reminded us last week, in architecture, in how the church struggles with art, is really important because it's our way of saying See what God has done. It's a it's a form of word architecture, and and the arts in and in and outside of the church space, as Becky was talking about last week, is so important. Um, about and this season highlights it. It seems to me, it's not an accident that Luke remembers Mary singing a poem. There are other po- poetry, and <coughs> scriptures filled with poetry. That um, Bruce Waltke used to say, uh, you should read a lot of poetry, or, and Eugene Peterson used to say this to pastors. I'm told, you should read a lot of poetry because if you don't, you're not going to understand the Bible. The Holy Spirit loves poetry. Oh, wrote lots of it, psalters, poems. The Lord's teaching takes on the cadences of poetry in the Sermon on the Mount and other places. Paul wrote hymne-sounding poems, Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God. Uh, I think that's worth remembering at Advent. God's infinity, one more time, dwindled to infancy. Eliot and Milton and Hopkins and lots of others, and the hymnody that we sing at this time of the year is such a joy. And at the same time, as we mentioned earlier, the deep uh, theology of it all—that it, deserves our best efforts for sure. I'm going to close. Uh, alas, the late John Webster, great speaking of theolo- a great theologian. Uh, Jordan Center was running off. Is now in um, St Andrews in Scotland. Mr Webster, a learned theologian, is going to be his uh, thesis director. But he passed away a while ago, John Webster. So he's got another thesis director. John Webster, I'd love to read his book. He says very simply, the chief act of theological existence is to pray this. Give me understanding according to thy word. That's what a theologian does. Boy, it gets complicated. That Calvin-Luther discussion in the 16th century got awfully complicated. But they were seeking. Lord, give us understanding of what you're saying in the mystery of your actions through Mary, through Jesus coming into the world. Uh, give me understanding according to your word. And it's worth reminding ourselves that in as this gospel open opens, we hear that Luke and Mary sought understanding. Luke, he says, I inquired. Mary. Luke reminds us, she pondered it. You can't just get the gist of the gospel quickly. You can get it that way a bit, but it won't bless you deeply. You've got to struggle with it. See what it's saying. Um, Mr. Mister um, Mr. Webster talks about in this regard, we seek an intensive apprehension, intensive apprehension of these things. And so should we, of course. Mary pondered because she wanted to understand what was going on here in the mystery of what was happening to her. And the word became flesh, for sure. Yes. Uh, Mary thought to understand that. We should not be surprised at the, uh, it seems to me, at the formal beauty of this uh, of this song that Mary sang. Mary pondered these things. She thought about how to say this mystery that had surprised her life, if you will, if that's the right way to put it. The beauty of Luke's Gospel is part of the revelation, the poetry of it, this high mystery. The Word, indeed, became flesh and dwelt among us. And of this mystery Mary sings for us. Uh, And we pay a lot of attention to it, I hope. At Advent, Mary sings. A, I find it a blessing just to, uh, just to go through her song and ponder it with her, what God has done for us. A word of prayer before we converse about these things. Lord, we thank you for Mary's song. And we pray that you will uh, teach us to learn, mark, inwardly digest it so that Uh, Your name will be glorified and we will be instructed in these wonderful uh, mysteries that you are doing for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. (coughs) Well, there we go.
2: Mm-hmm. it's too bad you're not in the back of the room to ask some questions
0: do you want me to ask the myself some questions mm. <laughs> yeah. you don't look like Jim Packer <laughs> mm. but, sir, good sir
2: can you can you remember uh, can you sorry remind us when Luke was writing because what you said mm. about eyewitnesses is, is, is really yeah. important and of course is that Richard yeah. Ockham book of, uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses yeah, Jesus is yeah. so worth
0: So yes, so um, could you repeat the question? Uh, I just yeah, that's a good.
2: Luke is talking about. Oh yes. So still alive. Yes. Remind us what years we're talking about? Oh yeah. Many people are still under the delusion that. The, these words are written down hundreds of years later, mm. um, according to some fantasies of some faith community somewhere, and, <laughs> yeah, uh, and yeah. it was very much more immediate than
0: that. Yeah, yeah. I just, uh, yeah, um, it's worth hearing again, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us. And they said, seemed good to me. Put this story together for you, Theophilus." So Luke, uh, I, I don't think it's doubted by even uh, very uh, 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 skeptical scholars that Luke probably knew eyewitnesses to the Jesus circle. There was Jesus and his circle, and Luke definitely pl- would have known people in the Jesus immediate circle. I don't think that's doubted. But in terms of, um, in terms of dating, of course, it's, it's always open to uh, who you're going to listen to. I like John A.T. Robinson, who was not an orthodox Christian in any way, the famous bishop. But he concluded by the end of his life that every document in the New Testament had been written before 70 A.D. So if that's true, Luke is maybe writing in the 50s. Luke almost certainly knew Paul. Paul knew uh, the brothers of the Lord. He knew James. He knew Peter. He fights with Peter. Mm-hmm. So that he's close to the inner circle. So Luke, uh, I, I think that's not too dis- disputed very much. Is that a good? No. But the date, in terms of date, there are some scholars who he's out at ninety A.D. and others would have him no, no, he's fifty years. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's only it's speculation.
2: It's just it's interesting because mm. we. We're reminded, of, there's so much history going on right now, it's, uh, Oh yeah. To be overloaded with history at the moment, but yeah, you know, yeah. the election in the states oh, and the yeah. ferment in, 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 mm. in the rest of the mm, world, mm. and it's just interesting to speculate that Luke was no further from the crucifixion, mm. perhaps, mm. than we are from the first Gulf War or something. Yeah,
0: like that. yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah, that's why uh, living presence issues for for memory. Uh, people inquire about memory issues in a culture. Is, I find it always. Marcus Baugno, one of our own, so to speak, has written uh, very interesting things about living memory issues. Uh, very, it's just fascinating stuff. I, uh, please.
3: Just um, you touched on earlier about how there's you know, the language in Scripture of Mary being the mother of our God, the Savior. And do you think that we in the Protestant world have not given her her due in one sense because mm-hmm. maybe we're reacting too much against the yeah, excesses sure. of sure. the Roman Catholicism where sure. she's effectively the fourth person of the Trinity. Sure. Uh, and here you mm-hmm. see this and then even mm-hmm. the definition of Chalcedon, which we affirm mm-hmm. that she is called God-bearer. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, do, have we not maybe... Mm-hmm blessed her, get, get, have mm. we not been of the generations to call her blessed enough, yeah. a, as, as we should, not maybe. necessarily, but, but we're reacting, I think, maybe. Oh, I think smart. so. I think so. You know, we're afraid of doing that too much yeah, because sure. we're that
0: oh, I, I, I think you've said it nicely. I think that's true. I remember Ernie Eldridge used to say, uh, when the Protestants get to heaven, they're going to meet Jesus and the first thing he's going to say to you, I want you to meet my mother. <laughs> 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 You ignored her a bit I don't know i on the on the big front the, here's where theology plugs in again I mean the our Roman friends say, you know you've got an Adam and a second Adam. you've got an Eve. Where does the other foot fall? Do we have a second Eve? They think so. We say, show us in Scripture. The old story, eh? But I'm glad that Catholics and Protestants are talking about these things uh, in learned ways. The fellow I'm standing in for now, you know, is part of the Evangelicals and Catholics Together movement, and they're going over, making sure we really understand one another and hear one another thoroughly. No more bearing false witness about one another. So now Mary plays a rich role in the piety of wonderful Christians, and we Protestants have taken a step back from that. And there you go; it's always it's, all, it's on the church's uh, yeah. discussion list, isn't it? There, there's some. Oh, Martin, please.
2: So you said something about the difference in between the Lutheran and Calvinist. Yes, 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 um, and. Uh, you went for a, by a very, very quickly. Yes, time. By so
0: I was, yes. Profound. Oh, oh, thank <laughs> you. Thank you. <laughs> my, prof- my profundities are usually hit and run. You just don't want to. <laughs> More conversation might reveal other things than profundity. Yeah, Calvin somehow thought this through and thought it was obviously. I think it was regarding sacramental mysteries. Calvin believed, as I understand it, and I wish Jim Pack was here, Dave. He, he, but. Here's a, a, a brief overview from a. Uh, I hope I'm not a casual reader about these things. Calvin thought yes, the second person of the infinite Trinity becomes man, takes upon himself a body, but then in the Reformed tradition, the formal way it's referred to is it's called the in Latin the extra Calvinisticum for some reason. It's Calvin also believed that the second person of the Trinity remains at the with his Father, upholding the universe by his word of power, as the letter to the Hebrews says. So there's a kind of there's a kind of dualism in Calvin's thinking about the word made flesh that the body is uh, there, but it doesn't totally encompass the second person somehow. Whereas the Luther Luther said, oh no the the, the mystery of the Lord's body is that it it partakes of divinity so much, so perfectly. That it is everywhere present. So that's why the Lutherans to this day have they don't believe in transubstantiation but something like it. You You meet Jesus on the holy table. You meet his body. Whereas we Calvinists say through the mystery of the spirit we are given Jesus and Calvin could be very mystical what he wanted to be he thought, as you eat and drink, you ascend with Jesus and meet him in his body in heavenly places, echoing Paul in Ephesians and Colossians so there I see next year is the five hundredth anniversary of the mystery of that great event, and some of these issues will be discussed again. Why in the world did the reformed and the Lutherans not agree about the sacrament well it 's sort of like that. Mm-hmm. That's the backdrop to it as I understand it. And it bothers me to this day. <laughs> this is silly, but... They should have worked out a deal.
1: <laughs>
0: of within this parameter, we'll agree that we're all in Christ. We're participating in the mystery. And your footnotes about it all may be different than my footnotes about it all, but uh, we will be one in Christ. And I... if You know, was that a possibility? Maybe not. But the... The Reformation had its weird aspects. I mean, we Protestants are now willing to say that, as we talk to Catholics, we didn't have the whole, we didn't own the truth back then. Uh, there's things that have to be unfolded further. I'm a Protestant. I don't, I won't apologize for that. But I see there's room for more with Mary and with Luke, pondering and inquiring. Oh, sir,
3: thanks, Harvey, for stepping in uh, to fill the the Thanks. Um, last night I watched a, a documentary. My gosh, it was disturbing. It was uh, on the Smithsonian Channel. Maybe other people saw it. So it was on the, the decadence of the West. Mm. And the thesis of the documentary was that the Western world is is in decline. Mm. Like all great empires, when they reach their zenith, uh, they then may start to crumble. Yeah, I- so many... Descriptors of, or evidences of how that is happening in the Western world, uh, primarily focusing on the United States, consumerism, a variety of indicators. Um, so, with that in my recent background of last night, I was intrigued with Mary's descriptor of uh, the word emptiness and the rich he has sent away empty. Yes. Yeah. And just, I just, uh, just the spiritual assessment of mm. that, um, that human experience mm. that when we part from God, we're left we're with emptiness.
0: So yeah, just yes. a yeah. Well, uh, my own prejudice, I'll let them show here. I mean, on uh, the, 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 uh, the amazing scholar, whatever else you think of him as a man, but the, uh, Charles Taylor. Has uh, un- unpacked uh, our, the humanism and the unbelief of Western culture, uh, uh, and, and he sees it as as indeed the humanism is crumbling. It's fragile. It's one of his favorite words. Mm-hmm. That the, the richness of our culture is unsatisfying, and all around us, he would say, in with great scholarly detail, that is evident. Humanists, the, the formal guys, just despise Taylor. Because he's, with such scholarly acumen, shown that their worldview is just, it isn't working anymore. He calls humanists, interestingly, the worst conversation partners in our culture. (laughs) (laughs) Because if you ever meet them, I meet one once a week, we get together. You cannot get through a barrier that is up there. Oh, religion's bad, it's the Crusades, it's, you know, you people are... Warriors, you're bad. You just can't. But it's it's a fragile absolutism, I think. So you just patiently listen. The sovereign self, the rich self, is the sovereign self. Taylor would say, and it needs it's it's made to be poor and receiving life as a gift with praise to magnify our creator. It's the first step towards sanity, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Uh, a secular age Charles Taylor Taylor. it's a oh there's also a book called how to read Charles Taylor by Christian (laughs) which I've read both I'm quite proud There's,
1: there's also there's also um Lang, mm. or not Lang lectures, yeah, he
0: uh, did C Lang lectures. C, yeah. But the CBC ones you can you
1: can get those. Yeah. Massey Massy yeah. lectures. Taylor's, you can get yeah. a script of that and that's yeah. quite um, yeah. easy to
0: understand compared yeah. yeah. Taylor's not a card carrying uh, evangelical Christian in any mind. He's sort of a liberal Roman Catholic, but he's really got his uh, his ha- I think this his hand on the pulse of, of where what, where we are now and the the strangeness of where we are now. I think. But I... See, um, um, who's this on my left?
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have one bonus no, question.
0: Oh, oh, a, one, bonus a bonus question.
3: I, I'm just amazed with... um the way Mary finishes this is before the descent of the Holy Spirit mm. she's
0: already aware of Trinitarian. oh okay, okay. Uh, th- th- that's not in Luke's text th- this was taken from the prayer book so oh. but she is she is um, you yeah, know she's yeah. In, implicitly a Trinitarian we'll give her that
1: yeah. yeah. sorry I, I, I think John had his hand up for a yeah, while
0: you, you know with the Catholics were the two things when you said the Holy Spirit loves poetry poetry is kind of like a Lemming Paragon rhythm of words, it's a pleasant way to use yeah. word. But the Catholics and that Queen of Heaven, where, mm. who, who and where did they start using the term? We both use Mother of God, Reform, mm-hmm. and Catholic, mm-hmm. yeah, but where did they develop the term mm-hmm. Queen of Heaven? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I wonder. Yeah, uh, you know, the, the details, uh, I, I'm not the guy to ask, but I kind of, a, an, at Trent, especially after the Reformation, there was this. But the Protestants don't like will will magnify to use that term. So Mary, they started to say in your face, Protestants. Mary is really important to us, and we do pray to the saints. And it, it, so it was magnify, it was exacerbated from a Protestant point of view at that time. Mm-hmm. But the Catholics will back off from that, you know, when they they get our sophisticated distinctions, and they know the Mary stuff has to be handled carefully. Mm-hmm. And I think they're willing to say that they know there was some strange errors that crept into that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. I, I didn't mention, but just on the Trinitarian stuff, holy is his name. I, I, I wonder, for time's sake, I have left it out. Mary, Mary says, holy is his name. I love, why Mary, you might say. Uh, uh, I'm, Karl Barth, famous, a theologian who arduously struggles with these things. He calls God, he who loves in freedom. A lovely definition of God. He who loves in freedom. Mm-hmm. God freely chose a teenage girl in Nazareth. And if we ask why, it's because he, our God, loves in freedom. Why did he choose us to be here? Knowing Jesus. He loves in freedom. He's shown us his salvation. So.